Well, let's read from the Word of God in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, and we're beginning to read at verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be you reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the troubled spots of the world, in the places where there's strife and division, we often hear reference to reconciliation. We had in South Africa, for example, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, maybe debated what contribution it may or may not have made to the present-day state of the nation. But it's something that has even been proposed by some for Northern Ireland. Reconciliation to bring together alienated parties, to bring peace to troubled nations. And in many situations, people need to be reconciled to one another. But as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, part of which we read earlier, that shows us there's a greater reconciliation that everybody needs, not just between ethnic groups or different parties in society, but a reconciliation with God, the God from whom we are alienated. That is how the Bible describes us, alienated from God. Uh, And the call of the Apostle Paul, like all uh, of the Apostles, we find it uh, there in verse 20, for example, be reconciled to God. Of course, it's one thing to be told to do something. It's another thing to be able to do it. Along with the call, be reconciled to God, Paul provides good news because he tells us here that that reconciliation is possible. In fact, all the provision that is needed 
for reconciliation of sinners to God has been put in place. The amazing thing, of course, and this is the heart of the gospel message, is that the reconciliation comes from God's side. It's not something uh, that we can manufacture. We read in verse 18 uh, of God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Reconciliation comes from God's side, from the one who's been offended by us, by our sin. Reconciliation, as Paul describes it here, is God's work. It's God's initiative. If God had waited for us to take a step towards him, to reconcile ourselves to him, he would have waited forever. We don't have it in us. We are dead in our sins. Reconciliation must come from God's sight. And that is what Paul explains in this wonderful chapter. But of course the question arises, if reconciliation to God is possible, well, how is it possible? How is it that a holy God who cannot look upon sin is willing to overcome his righteous wrath, uh, his revulsion at sin, and to establish a relationship of love and peace with sinners like us? How is that possible? He cannot ignore our sin. He can't pretend that we're not sinners. How is this possible? And the answer, as Paul spells out so clearly for us, is to be found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through what he has done that sinners like you and me can be reconciled to God. And we want to focus our thoughts on how that has been made possible by the Lord. It's in the final verse of 2 Corinthians 5. We're looking at verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're thinking today of the Savior made sin. The Savior made sin. Here is the very heart of the gospel. This is what enables people like us to be made right with God. It's the only possibility. The Savior made sin. As we look at this verse, we want to think first of all of the Savior. Of whom are we speaking? Whom is Paul writing here? We have a crucial description of the one through whom this reconciliation has come. The one who had no sin. Or more literally, and if you're using the ESV translation, you'll see it there, who knew no sin. A clear reference, isn't it, to the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew no 
sin. In contrast to all of us, here is one who knew no sin, who had no stain of sin upon him. Of course, the Lord Jesus knew what sin was. He knew what the word meant. He knew what the concept of sin was. He could have explained it far better than any of us. But he didn't know sin from personal experience of actually sinning. And indeed in the Bible, as we've sometimes seen, the word to know is a relationship word. And when it tells us that Christ did not know sin, it means he had no relationship with it. It didn't stain him in any way. He had no personal connection with sin. The Savior is sinless. The Bible provides abundant testimony to the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus. In Hebrews 4 and verse 15, we have this amazing statement of the writer. With regard to Christ, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. It's not that he wasn't tempted. Tempted in every way, as we are. He experienced all kinds of temptation. Never forget that. That's the reality of Christ's human nature. And indeed, he knew the power of temptation better than we do. That may seem a strange statement, but it's true. Because Christ resisted everything that the devil could throw at him. So often we give up before we feel the full power of the enemy. But Christ didn't. He felt the full power of temptation. He knows its strength better than we do. And yet never surrendered to it. This is the one who could stand before a hostile audience. People who hated him, who wanted to destroy him, who would discredit him by any means they could. And he could look at them, as John 8, 46 tells us, and challenge them. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? We wouldn't dare do that. But Jesus did And he knew they had no answer, and they didn't. If they could in any way have convicted him of any sin, they would have done it. But they couldn't, and he knew they couldn't. Even those who hated him could not produce one example of sin in the life of the Lord Jesus. In contrast, of course, as the Bible says, we are all sinners. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all Adam's children, as the Bible tells us. And we know what that means. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, in Adam, 
all die. Not just that our bodies die, but spiritually we're dead because we're Adam's children. We share in his fallenness and his sinfulness. And so spiritually we are dead and separated from God. Jesus is different. In a way that we can't fully explain or understand, the Lord Jesus was not a child of Adam as we are. Vitally important in that is his virgin conception. It is different from the way in which we come into existence. And the link with Adam was broken. Now, Jesus' human nature is fully human. It lacks only sin. But the link back to Adam in the case of Jesus was broken. And he's not a child of Adam the way we are. And so he doesn't die in Adam the way we do as sinners. He is different. He's not part of the world of sin and death. He is sinless. And the sinlessness of Jesus is essential for his work as Savior. If there had been any sin in the life of the Lord Jesus, he would have had to atone for that sin, and he couldn't help us in any way at all. He would have been useless as a Savior if he'd had to save himself. But he didn't. He's described by Peter, for example, 1 Peter 1.19, a lamb without blemish or defect, a suitable sacrifice for sin. No sin of his own. And so he is able to deal with our sin. The Savior knew no sin. Free from any taint, any pollution, any guilt. And so he's able to deal with our sin. It's essential that he be sinless, and he was. Not even his worst enemy could find one sin in his life. The Savior then, who knew no sin. But then Paul goes on uh, in the second place in this verse to speak about the substitution. The substitution. The very core of the work that Jesus has done to save us, we have it here. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It is a substitutionary work. Now we're familiar with substitutes in sport and other spheres of life. Someone who comes on and takes the place of another. And the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is substitutionary. He takes the place of others. He takes the place of his people, of all who will ever trust in him for salvation. In view here are all those who will eventually be saved. Verse 14 says, One died for all, and therefore all died. It's not referring to every human being, because the Bible tells us not every human being will be saved. But all who will be saved are included here in this substitution Christ 
who knew no sin, made to be sin for us, taking the place of his people. That's the substitution that Paul is writing about here. What does he mean by that expression, God made him to be sin? What's the significance of that? How was was Jesus made to be sin? Well, the scene is a law court. That's the the picture that Paul uh, paints for us. The court of law, sinners are standing before a just judge. And when all the evidence is presented, they're clearly guilty. There is no debate about it. Sinners are guilty before a holy judge. And we deserve eternal death. So there is no dispute, there is no argument that can be raised in our favor. But now the judge does something amazing, something almost incredible. We wouldn't believe it if God himself hadn't told us. The judge himself counts our sin and our guilt as belonging to his sinless son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word sometimes we use is he imputes our sin and guilt to Christ. He counts it as if it was not ours, but it belonged to Jesus as if he had sinned our sins, as if he carried our guilt. And that's what God the judge does. He imputes our sin and our guilt to the sinless Lord Jesus Christ. Christ did not become a sinner. Notice that. At no point was he a sinner. He was always pure and spotless, but he was made to be sin. He was treated as if he were a sinner. As the whole burden of our sin and our guilt is laid upon him and he carries the consequences. That's what it means for the Lord Jesus to be made sin, to be treated as a sinner, to have our sin and guilt laid upon him, charged to his account as if he had actually committed those sins. That's the heart of the saving work of the Lord Jesus. And of course, it's supremely at the cross that Christ has borne the consequences of our sin. Now, he bore the consequences all through his life but it's particularly at the cross at Calvary that the Lord Jesus takes the consequences of our sin. There, as he hung on the cross, he endured the righteous wrath of God, the wrath of the triune God. That's something that we ought to bear in mind. The wrath of the Father but also in a profound sense, his own wrath against sin as the Son and the wrath of the Holy Spirit. The wrath of the triune God was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
As Jesus died on the cross, he endured everything that's due to the sins of his people. The wrath of God in all its terribleness and all its fullness, he has borne. Death in its deepest sense, eternal death, is what Christ has endured as our substitute. Separated from God. The wonder of those words in Psalm 22 that Aaron quoted earlier. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back upon the human nature of his son there on the cross, treated as a sinner, bearing the wrath, enduring the consequences of our disobedience and our sin. There is divine love. If you would know what the love of God means, there it is at the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, compelled by nothing but love, hung there enduring the consequences of our sin. The very thing that he did not know, he was made to be and made to be willingly. He is not a reluctant sacrifice. No doubt, throughout the Old Testament, as the animals were brought to the altar to be sacrificed, often they would resist and struggle. They were not volunteers. The Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute, is the ultimate volunteer, taking the burden of our sin upon himself. You see what it cost him in Gethsemane. You see how his pure heart was repulsed by what lay ahead of him. And yet, out of love for us, he endured it. He went to the cross for us. If you're a Christian today, you can say Christ was made sin. And endured all of that for you. The substitution. How can we take in such love? How can we grasp the immensity of what God has done for sinners in Christ? How can we begin to take in the love that was demonstrated at Calvary. We can take in only a little bit. And even that little bit is glorious. And to think we'll have eternity to understand it more fully. And we'll still not have exhausted the richness of the love of God in Christ. The substitution. The Savior, the one who knew no sin. The substitution made to be sin for us. Taking our place and bearing what we should have borne. We should have been on that cross. That's what we deserve. And Christ took it in our place. The Savior the substitution, 
And finally, the salvation. The salvation. What is the effect of Christ's saving work? What is the result of him being made sin for us? And Paul tells us at the very end of this chapter, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we're still in the law court. Still the same picture, the same kind of language that Paul is using. And now he is describing for us the conclusion of the transaction that God has begun. We've already thought about how God counts our sin as belonging to Christ, as imputing our sin and guilt to him. But that's only part of the story, glorious though it is. Because the completion of the transaction now follows. We're in the law court. We're dealing now not with our inner nature, with our hearts, but with our standing before God, our standing before God and his law, our status. That's what we are dealing with. And Paul tells us that just as Christ was counted as being sin, so all those who belong to him are now counted as being the righteousness of God. Isn't that an amazing statement? We were sinners. In Christ, now we are counted as the righteousness of God. As the judge imputes our sin to Christ the substitute, as he counts our sin as belonging to him, he goes on to count the righteousness of Christ as belonging to us. He imputes the very righteousness of his Son to all those who trust in him. That's the completion of this wonderful transaction, that our status is changed from being sin in God's sight to being the very righteousness of God. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is counted as belonging to us. We have the status of those who have fulfilled all the demands of God's law perfectly which we haven't done, but Christ has done in our place. It's all counted as belonging to us. His obedience, perfect obedience, is counted as our obedience. And in fact, all we've given God is disobedience. It's counted as ours. And when God looks at his people, when he looks at those who believe on the Lord Jesus, what he sees is his own son and the righteousness of his son. And that's how he regards us and that's how he treats us. He sees 
the righteousness of his Son rather than our sin and our guilt, because that's been charged to Christ. This is what the New Testament means by the word justification. One of the great Bible words, justification. One of the watchwords of the Reformation, truth. It wasn't invented by the Reformers, it was rediscovered by the Reformers. Justification. Justification is God's verdict that people who trust in his Son, who put their faith in Christ, are righteous in his sight. That's justification. Paul writes about it at great length in the letter to the Romans. We've looked at this in the past. Romans 3 and verse 24, for example, describes us as justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are righteous in God's sight. Not simply that we're not guilty. If God declared us not guilty, that would be wonderful. And we'd be filled with thanksgiving. But he does more than that. He declares us actually, positively, righteous in his sight. And it's with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus in which there is no imperfection at all. That's grace. That's undeserved favor from God's hand. We could not begin to deserve such blessing. But God loves us, and that is what he gives us. We are justified. We receive this justification by faith. Paul hammers that lesson home in Romans and elsewhere. It's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, even that faith is God's gift to us. We don't work it up in ourselves. It's all from God and all the glory is his. And at the very heart of it all is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in him that we become the righteousness of God. Not by any other means. Not by any other route that you could ever devise. There is no other way to be right with God. Only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we are made the righteousness of God. In Christ, as we believe in him, we have this wonderful status, righteous in God's sight. That's the heart of salvation. That's what Jesus provides for sinners. Our position is totally transformed, isn't it? On the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we who stood before the Holy Judge as sinners deserving wrath, are declared to be righteous, indeed to be children of God, because of what Christ did in our place as our substitute. And God gives it as a free gift to all who trust in Christ, freely given, because the price has been paid.
hate. And those are wonderful truths that should delight the heart of every Christian. God declares us righteous, and he will, through the rest of our lives on this earth, gradually make us actually righteous in our day-to-day living and conduct. But that'll come. That's what we call sanctification. Actually becoming righteous in our experience. But this is the declaration of our status before God. You're righteous because of what Christ did in your place. Here is a sinless Savior, made to be sin in our place. The Savior, the substitution, the salvation, that we become the very righteousness of God. What a privilege. There is no higher blessing we could imagine. Are you, as you sit here today, the righteousness of God? Have you trusted in the Savior, given up any idea of making yourself right with God or being good enough for God, and you've trusted in Christ for yourself and asked him to save you? If you have, then you are the righteousness of God. That's the standing you have in God's sight, and it's his free gift It flows from his love. And if you haven't, don't delay. God's giving you an opportunity as you sit here today to receive this gift of your sin forgiven and to be made the very righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. It's there for you if you'll come to him. Don't delay. What a great Salvation provided for us. The Savior made sin so that we might be made the very righteousness of God.